The Biscuit is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, everybody. It is Tim Miner, and I want to welcome you to the March 5th, 2020 batch of The Biscuit Podcast. Uh, if you are a regular listener of The Biscuit Podcast, uh, you will note that we are on a bit of a visual arts kick. Uh, in fact, this is the third uh, conversation in a row with artists in Charlotte who are doing some truly incredible work with the visual arts. Uh, it's an exciting time in the Queen City, and I had a ball uh, with a conversation today that I had with Brian Gallagher, who is curator of decorative arts for the Mint Museum, and Owl, a member of Southern Tiger Collective, on a exhibition that they just launched at the Mint Museum on Randolph Road entitled Classic Black. Unfortunately, there is a third member of their great triumvirate, Hannah Crowell, uh, who is the exhibition designer, who is not part of the conversation, but you will hear her referenced a number of times in our talk because she was critical to bridging Brian, who has been conceiving of this exhibition for about 12 years, and Owl, um, whose work you will see uh, adorning walls, businesses, trash cans, um, and and pretty much everything in between, uh, Hana was the one that put those two together. Uh, and it was so a particularly kind of thrilling conversation for me because, as you know, as somebody who digests what uh, we serve up at The Biscuit, and the Biscuit Podcast, we believe in creativity and art in all its various forms. Um, I think for many years, people have felt that art is what is inside a museum. And you have to pass through the revolving door and, and pay your fee to experience it. Uh, clearly, that is a very viable way and, and a way to protect art, to uh, preserve its heritage, to educate. It's vital. Um, but what we've seen in Charlotte is this incredible renaissance of art outside buildings. Um, everything from murals that have been commissioned to stickers on the backs of stop signs. And at the end of the day, it's all about human beings using their, their passions and their talents to tell stories, to share what's inside them with the outside world in the hope that there's connection that's formed. And that's what I love the most about Classic Black. Um, at its heart, Classic Black is an exhibition of uh, basalt sculpture, uh, which dates back to the 18th century. Uh, a man named Josiah Wedgwood and his contemporaries who emulated classical Greek uh, urns and um, reliefs, coins, busts uh, in, a, um, in a black basalt substance that then was sold to um, – people to use in their homes for drawing rooms or for libraries. So it's a very, you know, it itself was a new take on classical sculpture. Basalt sculpture in and of itself when it came out was a reinterpretation of classical sculpture. But now it is several hundred years old and ready for reinterpretation. So this exhibition inside the mint is really unlike anything I've ever seen there or anywhere else. An incredible use of staging and color to help those sculptures pop inside the space. And then Hannah and Brian worked with Owl to use her blob forms, her language that she uses in her art to 
contemporize and to draw attention to and add to and to recontextualize the basalt sculptures. It really is something that uh, if you've seen photographs, uh, you're probably intrigued, but you need to go see it in space to, to witness and experience how it works all together. I've said a lot here and it's uh, I don't want to distract you or delay you from the conversation that flows. It's really in, in all the uh, time that we've been doing the podcast, one of my absolute favorite conversations that we've gotten into. I think it's a lot about um, the heritage and history of art across the world, but in Charlotte and the future as well. Uh, so before we get to that, I do need to thank our incredible sponsors who allow us to go on these audio adventures with you. That is Ortho Carolina and Four Eyes Web Design. I want to mention that we are very grateful and happy members of the Queen City Podcast Network. And then I want to put something on you. I need you to do two things for me, just two. One is if you like this podcast and you enjoy listening to it, please go to the uh, the podcast provider or net, uh, uh, platform of your choice. Give us a five-star review. That's not a vanity thing. That is a visual uh, thing. That That helps our podcast come up further and further in people's searches so that they can find this, discover it, and go on these adventures with us. And the other thing is that Matt Olin and I and, and Andy Go, our producer, we don't know everything. We, we have a, the finger on the pulse of a lot of creative uh, experiences in Charlotte, but we don't know everything. So please go to thebiscuit at charlotteiscreative.com and share ideas of people that we should talk to, places that we should go to, and movements we should be moved by. Uh, and with that, please do enjoy uh, this lovely conversation with Brian and Owl. I, I honestly think this is well worth your time. You will fall deeper in love with Charlotte, the Mint Museum, street art, Southern Tiger Collective, and the entire movement that's taking place here in Charlotte right now. Hey, everyone. It is Tim Miner, and I am here for a classic black batch of the Biscuit Podcast. I'm sitting in the Mint Museum at Randolph uh, with Brian Gallagher, the curator of the of the museum, and Owl, an artist who has uh, teamed up with Hana and Brian on an incredible exhibition that blends just modern street art with classic basalt sculpture. It's fantastic. It's called Classic Black, the basalt sculpture of Wedgwood and his contemporaries. It opened on February the 9th, but if you did missed it, don't worry, you have until August 30th to dive in. So my first question is for Brian. Um, you know, Brian, I could give, I could read off the press release, but this is really in your bones. You've been working on this for a while. So in your words, would you describe the exhibit and, and tell us a little bit about what people should expect because the legacy of Wedgwood and the 18th century basalt you know, sculpture that he and his contemporaries uh, did maybe isn't on the radar screen of everybody who's listening to this. So tell us about what someone that walks in is going to experience. Sure. And thanks, by the way, Tim, for giving us a chance to talk about the exhibition today. So Josiah Wedgwood was this incredibly innovative potter who came up with many, many inventions and made many contributions to the, to the history of world ceramics. You just can't underestimate how important he is as a figure. This exhibition focuses on just one of his innovations, but a really wonderful one, this type of stoneware body called black basalt. It's, it's a clay that truly is black through and through. It's not something that uh, whose outer surface has just been coated with black enamel or black glaze. The clay is stained with a couple of key ingredients to make it black through and through. 
Also important is that this stoneware body, this black basalt stoneware body, is very fine grained. So although Wedgwood didn't invent black stoneware, it was made earlier in the 18th century. It even goes back to classical antiquity. His is the first version that it's so refined that people who live in polite society in late 18th century England and beyond really want to live with it in their interiors. The other thing I wanted to point out is that although he used his black basalt to make what he would have called useful wares, things like teapots and teacups and uh, bowls for uh, dinner service, this exhibition focuses just on ornamental wares, specifically sculpture and, and ornamental works that have key sculptural components. So you'll see a lot of portrait busts, a lot of uh, full figures, as statues that is. You'll see things like vases and candle holders, but they all have sculptural elements to them. I think one thing that uh, that we discussed, we walked around and I had the great benefit of walking around with both you and Al to get your take on the exhibition is um, I, oftentimes people have an idea of the art that ends up or the work that ends up in a museum as something that was made for art's sake, you know, maybe at the time of construction, right, or the time that the artist worked on it. Very much Wedgwood and his contemporaries were creating art to sell to live. Uh, and talk a little bit about that that's, and how that that's plays That's absolutely in. right. Uh, although I, I truly believe, and I hope every visitor to the museum uh, believes that these works of art are worthy of our attention, even today, more than 200 years after they were made because they're of their artistic and technical merit. At the end of the day, this was their business. Josiah Wedgwood and the other Staffordshire potters who made these things had to sell them, um, that this was their livelihood. And so they... They were always trying to keep an eye on where popular taste was going and stay ahead of that curve if at all possible. And, and in this time period, in the late 18th century, the predominant taste is the neoclassical style. So that's why we see so many objects in this exhibition that relate to classical mythology or some of the great philosophers and writers like Socrates and Homer from the ancient world. So one of the things we tried to do with the exhibition's design to remind people that this was a business for Wedgwood and his peers is to use each of the galleries to create the idea of a showroom. Wedgwood was actually the first Staffordshire potter to open a showroom in London in 1768. Other potters eventually followed, but he, he was the first. And so each of the exhibition galleries here at Mint Museum Randolph suggest a showroom and specifically meant to be a type of room that if you were an elegant customer visiting uh, a showroom like Wedgwood's in the 18th century, you would see a room set up much like, much like a room that you might have at home. So we have a showroom that's meant to suggest a sculpture hall or a sculpture gallery, one that's meant to suggest a library, an elegant library from the 18th century. And the third one is the drawing room where you would have entertained your guests and had to therefore reflect whatever the contemporary taste of the day was. See, I think that that in itself, just constructing the flow of the exhibition to reflect how those works in one way would be have been present, you know, presented in their own time. That alone is is innovative. But you took it a step further and you you tapped into a local Charlotte artist. We're glad we poached you from Columbia, uh, you know, to uh, Owl to help kind of take that design further. Um, Owl, what was it like to be part of this Presentation. How did you, how did Brian bring you in? How did you find your way into Classic Black? First of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, I really love being able to be a part of collaborative works. Uh, so the first person that approached me was actually Hannah. Um, she and I had worked in the past, uh, very not 
very closely in a project like this, but we worked uh, sort of from afar. I knew she worked at the Mint. She has seen my work. I'd done Constellation CLT with the Mint Museum before in Uptown. So that was another thing that sort of brought me to this family of the Mint. Um, and then during Battle Walls this past summer, we had a whole competition in the front lawn of Randolph. And that really uh, sort of sparked the my work. I guess she kind of tied it all together in and really, that was the language that really set best the stage for what um, Brian and her were planning for this next exhibition. So for me, it was really um, a surprise when I had the uh, lovely uh, conversation with Hannah about what their idea for this next exhibition was, how much there was in uncertainty when it came to uh what I was going to bring being an abstract artist, uh, it's really difficult to pinpoint where your abstractions are going to go. Uh, but really what sets that to the next level is what, uh, stories behind it and what group of people are behind it. So when I was brought into this office where we are right now, uh, I had the chance to talk to Hannah and Brian and really see and put down our ideas, our goals for what they had envisioned for this exhibition and then sort of left the uh, creative process of creating the stage with the story and the architecture that they had planned to sort of uplift these sculptures to have a setting where they could actually interact and not just be sitting there in, a, in white walls. We really wanted these sculptures to have a place where they would have significance because there, there is a significance in what Wedgwood was doing back then and what we're doing now. So that for uh, for folks that maybe haven't yet looked at the pictures that we're going to have on on our page or the amazing pictures that are on the Mint Museum's page, paint a picture for us. Tell us tell us what looks different. Your contribution to this because we know that it's it's put into three different halls that are three different settings, but I can still I can feel the people listening to this podcast think they're going to walk in and see a traditional museum set, uh, setting. Tell us about the color palette and your contribution to the work around Wedgwood. So one of the main things that Brian mentioned was they, they, they had this thought of the pink, this pink color. And uh, I, I I love fell in love with that idea. Um, I'd been looking at sunrises and sunsets for the past year and a half and journaled about them, how they made me feel, how each color I could process, what would really come to mind when those colors came to to my presence. And um, when I saw the opportunity of being able to bring these colors into a gallery, we sat down and really, I brought them a, a, a picture of just sunset hues. Um, and I felt like that was where this needed to live. Uh, we didn't know really exactly how we were going to divide the rooms yet as far as color palette, but we knew that that sunset needed to evoke an emotion just like it did to us from a piece of paper and from just looking at it outside. So we chose colors in that color in that sunset palette that really brought to life these uh, these groups of sculptures. So the pink room having the sculpture garden, it really feels like this airiness of timeless, but it also has uh, columns that you, they kind of resemble columns from the past, but they're modern now. They're set along with uh, arches. So there are two things that are being married at once that you hadn't seen before. So it was really interesting to see how these colors were actually setting up the, the next layer of stage for, for these sculptures. So uh, we took these palettes that were really warm in the, in the rooms, and then we used purple 
to sort of balance that temperature so that it, we didn't use blue, like Witchwood did, used a lot of light blue, so we were, we're not gonna do the blue, but purple really had that blue that we wanted, that warmth of the blue without using blue. So that really brought in this whole spectrum of you being inside of an entire cube or cubes of color that you weren't expected to be at a museum. So I would say the first reaction that I get, and then I've heard others from visiting, is just a, a feeling of presence because it allows you to take in a space that you normally would not see the same. It actually has transformed into a completely different dimension of seeing these sculptures. Uh, you have to tell our, the audience about your blob language and how, yes. how critically important a contribution that is to the exhibition. So the blob language is the language that I've been developing since college. I fell in love with mark making. I, I loved rendering things, but that didn't evoke any emotion inside me. I really felt uh, passionate when I felt that I could translate something that I could feel and or um, channel into something visual that could be used in a collaborative process with my own work or with others. So the blob language has allowed me to really collaborate with many artists and what it does, it sort of brings the glue to the, to the room. It brings uh, the vibrations of what these sculptures, what the actual minerals that come from earth, that essence, it sort of brings you back to that. If you were to really look at these basalt sculptures up close, you'll find similarities in what is on the walls than there is on the actual sculpture. So the blobs really are meant to be a visual language that allow you to see what you really can't depict with your eyes, but something familiar to your eye, to how you're feeling, how the colors are interacting with each other, it sort of brings the two into a cohesive story where it just sort of brings you in to the room and you create your own story. You become the people that are in those showrooms looking at these rooms as if you were going to do something similar in your home, which funny enough, I've had a lot of people ask me to do some of these things in their homes now due to this exhibition. So we're seeing the results of exactly what Wedgwood would have done in the past. One thing I've really appreciated about the amazing contribution that Al's made is how it, it's having just the effect she, she just uh, voiced. I've already heard visitors say, wow, these blobs kind of remind me of the process of making something with clay, that there's the, the shape is amorphous and sort of you're flinging things out before it, become, it takes its final shape. Or another visitor said, these remind me of the flames licking the objects in the kiln, you know, during the firing process. So people really are seeing things in these blobs. And the, and the key point about them is that they're just so dynamic. They are echoing the dynamism inherent in the three-dimensional sculptures in front of them in just this really beautiful way that I never could have envisioned on my own. And I think it, it, in a way, it sort of, it feels like the sculptures and the, and, the, and the blobs are dancing in a production. And we've set the stage and Brian brought us the amazing actors, Hannah brought all the structures that needed to be in the stage. And I was able to bring that language that connected it for opening day so that we all could feel that story that's behind the, the imagery that we're just having viewers see. Uh, I love the aspect that the viewer now has the opportunity to make up that second part of 
their experience by assimilating, whether it's uh, it's clay, it reminds me of the days where I used to, you know, uh, knit and it reminds me of yarn, you know? So all those things, I want people to find the similarities that uh, my work could bring without actually painting the whole picture of something. It's sort of a an invitation for you to make a part of the story so that it, it has more value to it. That That is a just a beautiful way to put that. I love the, the analogy of, of the actors and the, and the stage I, for me, and I hate to, to take the microphone cause I, you guys are saying such amazing things, but, but my perspective on having seen it is oftentimes, uh, when I've gone to, uh, exhibitions of cl- particularly classical work, um, in other places, um, when you have a, a white background, white walls, and oftentimes white or or cream colored sculpture, you know, a marble, it all it flattens everything out. Um, and what I love about the presentation that you've come up with here is alive is the word. It it there's such depth of field from the columns you've put in to the colors to the blobs that pull you through and evoke the three-dimensionality of the art, invite you to walk all the way around it and see it in space. I mean, that's just, it, it's kind of a, a revelation. And I love too, that it's got that echo that this, although it's, this is work from the 18th century, it's just as alive today. It's, art is not calcified. It's still in our world and it still calls to us and is always open for reinterpretation or to be shown how it's always going to be relevant uh, to new eyes. And to that end, Brian, I've got a question for you. Um, two of my favorite quotes that, that the mint has used to promote this one came from, uh, from you saying that, that Josiah Wedgwood would, you'd like to think he would approve very highly of this presentation. Um, and the other from Jay Everett of Wells Fargo, one of the, the patrons of this exhibit who said, this is not your grandma's Wedgwood. Um, Talk to us a little bit about, you know, not only why those quotes are relevant today, why Wedgwood would have loved it, but how this is, again, evocative of how he approached uh, the work when he initially made it and, and put it out into the world. Sure. Thanks, Tim. And that is absolutely true. Wedgwood and his peers were making these pieces to fit in elegant interiors in late 18th century England and beyond. And those interiors were not monochrome, not by a long shot. They had they were riddled with color, lots of color pinks and blues and greens and yellows. Uh, if anyone is familiar with Robert Adam, a, a very famous architect of the time period, it was those types of interiors that Wedgwood was, was thinking about when he made these objects. And he was hoping to get the attention of Robert Adam and William Chambers and all these other star architects of the day who were creating these very colorful interiors. So he, we would like to think that he would entirely approve of the installation we have upstairs here at the Mint because it is showcasing his works in these very colorful rooms. The, the tag that you mentioned, that, that uh, Jay mentioned, which I think is just great, that this is not your grandma's Wedgwood, is very true. I, I recognize when I started working on this exhibition that for many people who are not um, diehard Wedgwood enthusiasts or ceramics enthusiasts, when they hear the word Wedgwood, they might be thinking of that blue and white ashtray or that blue and white candy dish that their grandmother owned or another older member of their family. And this exhibition definitely is not that. It is this, it is focusing, as I said earlier, on this very lovely, uh, all black stoneware called black basalt. And just as significantly, we have on view in this exhibition, 
works that even those diehard Wedgwood enthusiasts out there would never have seen before. There are truly some very, very rare objects that we were lucky to borrow from uh, other public and private collections to have here at the Mint. Some things are truly one of a kind, like this bust of Alexander the Great that greet people as they first enter the galleries, or these 25-inch tall sculptures of Neptune and the Triton, the tallest sculptures the Wedgwood factory ever made. And they derive from marble sculptures made by none other than Gian Lorenzo Bernini, the titan of the art world in 17th century Rome. There are sculptures based on Michelangelo, the great hero of the Italian Renaissance. People would not have seen these even if you collected Wedgwood your entire life because they are one of a kind and we were just so lucky to get their owners to lend them to us. So uh, that actually brings up a question of just the logistics that were involved in this. I, I think oftentimes, to use a classical reference, people think that uh, exhibitions or installations just kind of spring fully grown from the head of Zeus, right? And and clearly, this is something that you had to put a lot of thought that required a tremendous amount of coordination. Tell us a little bit, how long has this idea been kind of gestating in your mind? And then what what was involved in getting that many, uh, you know, a hundred sculptures that were put together from organizations across the United States and the globe, private and public? How, how did that all come together? Sure. Well, I, I mean, I'm sort of embarrassed to admit, and I know people won't be able to see me, but I have a head of uh, gray hair right now. And I jokingly or not so jokingly say uh, I was still legitimately a brunette when this idea first started. <laughs> so it, it does go back a number of years. Uh, it actually happened when I was um, not too long after I started at the Mint, which is back in 2007. And I was wandering in our storerooms one day and like museum store storerooms across the world, some of ours here at the Mint are a bit on the dim side and, and definitely on the overcrowded side. And I suddenly noticed these two library busts that I hadn't seen on previous visits to the storeroom. One is of a man named Junius Brutus, who purportedly helped to found the Republic of Rome way back in the ancient world. And the other one of Demosthenes, the famous Greek orator, also going back to classical antiquity. And I thought, well, I can't believe we have these things. And then when I looked further, I realized that they had never been on view before, which I just couldn't believe. And I stumbled across a couple of other really great examples of basalt objects that likewise didn't even seem to get attention from us before. And so this again is back in the 2007, 2008 time period. And I just sort of stored this idea away that maybe we had the nucleus of an exhibition that would focus on these things. But then uh, fast forwarding a little bit more to the present, it really was over the last four years that I, was, I had a chance. Other, other exhibition projects came and went, other uh, responsibilities. And I finally got to focus on this exhibition full time and went over to England, went to the Wedgwood Museum in Staffordshire, spent a wonderful week in the archives there doing some research, started visiting collections, went to the Victoria and Albert Museum. Of course, the Wedgwood Museum has the largest collection of Wedgwood in the world. Started talking with colleagues in England and then in America, started visiting some public museums, uh, collections of who had Wedgwood and got some ideas there. And then started reaching out to private collectors and I can't rave enough about the generosity of these folks, some of whom live in the Philadelphia area, some in Chicago, some in New York, because these people live with these objects. They adorn their dining rooms and their living rooms. And so for them to agree to give up these one-of-a-kind objects and, and uh, wonderful works was just so great on their part. And 
and we started to put together a checklist of, of what it is now about a hundred objects coming from us and UK museums and us private lenders. And, uh, then of course it involves every department on the museum staff as the exhibition starts to take shape, our marketing department to get the word out, our registrars to actually arrange the loans and the shipping to get those objects to us, our incredible installation team who actually create the pedestals and, and the look of the exhibition and advancement who raises the funds. We're so grateful to Wells Fargo Private Bank for being the corporate sponsor. Thanks to our advancement department who reached out to them and uh, Moore and Van Allen. Um, Press Foundation also contributed. The Dell Home Service League, one of the Mint's affiliates, uh, funded the catalog for the exhibition. So truly, this effort just involves so many people. Well, so you've been here, uh, well, if you said you've been here just over 12 years, you had this idea in 2008. So is this your 12th labor? Is this Hercules's 12th labor <laughs> for you? And hence the gray hair. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm that's hoping, probably about right. I'm hoping you have at least a quest for the golden fleece ahead of you <laughs> for that. Uh, just a truly uh, amazing um, installation. And I do think it's easy to forget how many people have to come together to put something like this together. Um, Al, I've got a question for you. Uh, so, you know, you're often described as a, as a street artist. Um, is that, and my question is, or I have two actually, is that a des a distinction, a designation that you like? And after doing this, has your self definition of yourself as an artist changed at all? Or, or is it just, this is just another project that you've taken on? Um, I think, People love to put labels on things. Uh, I have here in America, people call me street artist. Uh, they call me muralist. I go to South America and I'm called a graffiti writer. Um, that was the most interesting thing to me was traveling across the globe and finding that the definition for what I was changed over country, over people. Um, so really to me, I found the love for this through street art. It really allowed me to be free, to be uh, sort of fearless in a sense of uh, allowing my ego to put all things that I really wanted to process in public works so people could connect to it, judge it, take pictures with it, don't take pictures with it, buff it, whatever it was. I felt like the street really allowed me to find the expression that I was looking for. So to me, street art is always very, very close to my heart, as well as graffiti. To me, it's the most basic human expression that we have now. Cavemen used to do this. So this is our def sort of the way that we communicate and how we evolve. Over the past 10 years, I've seen street art go from tags on a dumpster and that same person now painting some of the largest buildings with some of the largest corporations and or artists that I've ever seen. So I, I've seen the evolution of why street art is important to me. So I think I will always consider myself a street artist because I do paint in the street. Generally 90% of the time I'm painting in the street. But what has allowed me to do that is sort of being open to all these other projects that don't define street art but really allow me to bring the street art to other atmospheres where I can talk about how it has brought me in my evolution, as well as building these bridges with institutions, with my own community. So to me, it was another project, but it was a very important project in the whole career of this entity called OWL. It's really important for her to do this project 
because it really built more bridges for people like me that see art in a very expressive way outside, have an invitation to come in and see how that actually relates to classical work and how it does impact your community and how it's evolving with you. So I wouldn't say uh, I will put a, lab a big label on, I'm still just a street artist. I'm really open to putting my work anywhere where I'm allowed to. And that's really the key word, where I'm allowed to. Um, because at times when you're not allowed, you take a risk and I've taken those risks. And I feel a lot of respect for people that do that because it takes guts to do something that you're not allowed to do. But you believe so much in it that then all those no's turn into yeses. And so now thanks to this project, it probably has opened a lot of doors for more institutions, for more of my community members to open up about street art and graffiti, that it's not just a one way road, but there's so many avenues that the artists can take and can still communicate with each other. Right. Brian, to that end, what, what do you feel uh, it's added or how has it, how has it uh, been discussed inside to have an artist whose work is usually seen out in the world to then pull it in, inside? How did that, what did that level do to this exhibition? Oh, to the exhibition and to the Mint in general, I think it's been a game changer. I really do. I think a bunch of us over the last year, as an aside, have been meeting and having retreats and talking about how can the Mint respond better and serve better our local community, break down the walls and that that notion that a museum like the Mint is this elitist institution that's only meant for a segment of the population. And you have to already know something about art to even get through the front doors. And uh, we, we, we don't feel that way about ourselves and we want other people to know that they're welcome. And so I, I'm hoping people see this as a, as a way where we are reaching out for the Mint to involve a, such a talented, gifted, amazing person like Al, a contemporary artist in an historical decorative arts show. I really feel very proud about that, that it's just not something the Mint has done bef before. And I'm not aware of too many other institutions that have done it either. And I really hope it's just the beginning of such relationships. I think we all benefit from a, re from a partnership like that. And I can truly say that working with Al and Hannah, our, our fabulous exhibitions designer on this project, has been the most rewarding personal, professional collaboration I have ever had. Wow, I, that's that's about the highest compliment one can give out. I, it, the interesting thing for me sitting here is when um, my partner Matt Olin and I started Charlotte's Creative, um, we were throwing out what if scenarios. And um, I have to give him credit for this. It was interesting. He said, what would it mean if the Mint Museum allowed uh, people, artists to tag the outside of Mint Museum. So this sitting here today, I mean, we're not at that level yet, but, but a little nervous awesome. there, I know I'm not, I said, what if, okay. uh, but, but I think the, the idea behind that was to change people's notions about art and to do the things that would pull, pull more people into the incredible cultural institutions that we have in Charlotte and, you guys have manifested that with this. It's just, it's beautiful to see. And I, I would say too, as somebody who is concerned about the working artists in Charlotte, the fact that not only have you given Al notoriety, but that um, this is, she's a working artist. This is helping her survive and sustain so she can do her work in Charlotte. Um, it's remarkable that the Mint did that. And I hope this is the first of many collaborations like that. Um, and to that end, Al, my one question I've got is, 
did you feel a kinship perhaps with Josiah Wedgwood as you worked on this? Because as a member of Southern Tiger Collective and a working artist, it's about putting your work into the world, but it's also about putting food on the table and, and heat in the, you know, coming out of the vents. Did you feel some that you were part of a grand tradition, you know, of, of working artists uh, with him? Absolutely. I think uh, when I decided to do art full time, it was about two years ago. I used to work at Apple. I had a great job with them. I was a senior technician and I was at a crossroads and I really felt like art was going to fulfill more than just I paying the bills and having food on the table. Um, when I chose to do art full time, I knew there was many behind me that had done it and there was no different why I couldn't do it, but it had everything, everything to do with how I saw the world that I was walking into and the community that I was expecting to feed me, I had to also expect me to give something to my community. So what has what ha has allowed me to do that is working in these collaborative places like Southern Tiger Collective and working in projects with more than one person has allowed me to see that this community definitely has sustainability, that it has jobs for a lot of artists. I think we don't have we don't do a really good job about education when it comes to educating the artists and the clients. So things like this, what we're, what we're doing, exactly what we're talking about, allows artists to see that perhaps it's just a fear of me talking to my neighbor about putting something in, in their business or going out there and asking for a show at your local coffee shop. Sometimes those little steps seem so far-fetched that I think the collaboration between institutions and businesses, the more that we do it, it has continues to, continuously to feed all of us at the table, not just one person, but multiple people. So for me, it was probably a, a really great, great, great outcome of coming and working here and being able to put, you know, food on the table. Uh, but with this project, I actually got the chance to donate to Southern Tiger two battle walls, which is actually a competition of artists that go at it for about four or six hours. And having the privilege to give money to the collective that helped me get to where I am was probably the, the best recycling of resources and budgets and emotions. All that was in one ecosystem and that was in my community. So if that has happened to me. I'm very hopeful for what it can bring, but I can definitely tell you that what drove me to this was the ultimate vision, it was not the amount of what it was going to come out to, but really was the passion behind the idea that this was going to be revolutionary, that no one had done this before, that there were very big shoes to fill and no amount of check was going to fill them, but really what I was going to bring to the table with my uh, visual aspect. So to me, that was more important. I think that goes first before I can actually expect my community or for me to expect the world to give me something. So. Mm -hmm. Well, I back Brian again, I just think just the notion of, of hosting battle walls was a beautiful thing for the mint to have done, but then to take it to the step further, it's, it's something I think everybody needs to kind of get out and see. And, and I have one final question for you both. Uh, uh, and it's one thing about the, the exhibition that I, uh, or, or installation that I'm kind of intrigued by is that the work that we're looking at dates back to, uh, the sculpture work dates back to the 18th century. So it's got a permanence it's, it's protected, it's collected. Um, the work that, that you've done on the walls is impermanent. 
much like street art. Um, how does what what layer does that add to the exhibition emotionally for you and, and for you, Brian? So I think I love the fact that you brought up um, that potentially how what if someone were to tag the the Mint Museum? Because I thought in my mind, I was like, it's brilliant because it did happen. So it happened with me. Everything that you see on the walls, I use the same stuff that graffiti writers use to tag on trash cans on the outside. We just had to learn the right artist with the right language to come and tag those walls. So to me, that was probably the most beautiful moment that I had as an artist and as a street artist was to be able to use a marker that I typically use on a garbage can, on a metal door, and I actually used it inside the walls of a museum. The same thing that people, writers before me were using. I was using the same, but in a different context. So then there's that bridge that I always like to talk about, about what is really street art? Is it just an expression? It's just one, one stage where I'm expressing myself. So to me, it was the chance to be able to express what I usually express outside, inside, in such a magnificent um, production that it's probably been the most enriching project that I've ever been a part of, same as Brian. And what I would add to that is, on a personal level, I absolutely already know that when the last day of this exhibition comes, August 30th, and we have to start getting the galleries ready for whatever succeeds it here at Museum Randolph, I'm going to be very, very sad <laughs> to see the walls painted over and to see Al's gorgeous, beautiful blobs and all those sunset colors she referenced earlier disappear for whatever comes next. That, that will not be a happy day. I'm very glad it will live on through photographs, though, and so we can always remember what it what it was like. On a professional level, what I would say is the fact that that will happen is entirely consonant with the life of these objects, that from the moment they are created, they are almost certainly going to pass through various hands from the moment they are made to the present day. And so they have lived through their lifetime in many different interiors with very different styles and different people enjoying them. And we're adding a new chapter in their lives, a great chapter, and it's not gonna be the last chapter either. So I'm just so proud of us for giving these objects a chance to shine and getting people, uh, giving people a chance to appreciate them in this beautiful setting that Al and Han have created for them. and. Please come see this. Thank you very much for your time today. This is where I put the Surgeon General's warning on. We are not encouraging anyone to tag the outside of the, of the Mint Museum. That was a hypothetical situation. Come inside and see the amazing work that, that Al has done and, it, and just embrace this incredible collaboration. You've got until August 30th. You have no excuse not to see it. So, all right, before we go, uh, we've got to give people a way to find out more about you and who you are and what you do. Owl, uh, if I'm if I'm curious about your art, how do I find you? So right now, I prefer to be reached through social media. Instagram would probably be the best way to get a hold of me at owl.clt. And my email is arco83xowl at gmail.com. Probably the best points of contact for me. I'm also part of two collectives, uh, Southern Tiger Collective and the Cocoon CLT. So you can also find those on Instagram at Southern Tiger Collective and at uh, the Cocoon CLT. Thank you, Brian. And for folks that want to uh, really dig into the, the cultural institution that is the Mint Museum, how do they 
how do they find out about this exhibition, Classic Black, and, and the museum and your work in general? Sure. Uh, people can just go to our website, www.mintmuseum.org. We actually have a website on there devoted to the exhibition, Classic Black. You can find out about that. You can find out about all our other programs and all the other things going on at the Mint. Beautiful. All right, guys. Get off your phones or your computers and get in your car and drive to the Mint Museum on Randolph right now and see Classic Black. Thanks again to Owl and Brian Gallagher of the Mint Museum for speaking with us. And of course, thank you, the listener, for tuning into the Biscuit Podcast. That's all the time we have for today's episode of The Biscuit. Remember to subscribe to The Biscuit Podcast for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a separating and review so that other creative charlatans can hear about us, or better yet, just tell your friends to listen. Call or text us at 704-835-0193 and leave us a 30-second message with your questions about creativity in the Queen City. We'll use the best messages on a future episode of the Biscuit CLT podcast. And finally, get the scoop on Charlotte's creative scene delivered straight to your inbox every week by subscribing to the Biscuit email newsletter. Do that now at BiscuitCLT.com. The Biscuit podcast is produced by Tim Miner, Matt Olin, and Andy Goh. Music by Harvey Cummings.